Hey everybody, Bob Olson here with Afterlife TV. You can find us at afterlifetv.com. This is where we search for evidence of life after death and ask the meaningful questions around that subject. Today we're going to be talking about navigating the afterlife with dream work. You now here's a subject that we have not covered before. Uh, we've talked a little bit about dream visitations, which we'll discuss today. But, uh, oh, this goes so much farther, so much deeper. Uh, I encourage you to hang on. This is just going to get more and more interesting as we get into this interview. But it starts off with this really interesting near-death experience that our guest had uh, at nine years old. And uh, he is the author of this book. Oh, what a fascinating book. The Boy Who Died and Came Back, Adventures of a Dream Archaeologist in the Multiverse. There's so much to say about even that title. Uh, we'll get into those things. Love the book. Very autobiographical. Probably the most of all the books that I think you've written. Um, you, his name is Robert Moss. Robert, thanks for joining us on Afterlife TV. Good to be dreaming with you, Bob. Yeah, well, that's right. We kind of are dreaming here, aren't we? Uh, well, it's a dream to have you on, actually, because uh, this is one of those books that... Uh, you know, it, it doesn't read like a nonfiction book. It, it reads like an autobiographical book that uh, is a page turner. You've had such a fascinating life. And uh, I mean, really, you have. I mean, you were going back. I mean, you, you now you do your dream work uh, before you were a novelist. You wrote novels. I did. I did. And I hope I still have some novelistic abilities to make people want to, to turn the pages. Yeah, well, and, and you're one of those people that just loves to write. I think I can just imagine you always writing. I heard uh, somewhere that, uh, well, there's more writings that you've done, but really uh, overall, not just uh, on the dream subject, but on all subjects, this is probably what, this is your 23rd book. Do I have that correct? Very good. That's number 23. I've just finished number 24, and it might sound like a lot, Bob, but, you know, in my understanding of my life contract, you know, the idea we have a contract before we come here, I'm supposed to publish 68, and I'm not a spring chicken anymore, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> I have a feeling you're going to do it. I do. I have a feeling you're going to do it. Uh, so, anyways, your, your, your website is mossdreams.com. I just want to mention that right from the get-go. Uh, if uh, because I know a lot of people like to listen to these interviews and then they'll surf around while they're doing it. So you can go to mossdreams.com, look at his website while we're talking. Uh, let's start right off with your near-death experience uh, experiences uh, because uh, our audience loves to hear about these. Yours is especially interesting, very unique. Uh, and I know that the one when you were nine years old is we're going to talk about the most. But it actually starts off, you did have uh, an experience at three years old. Why don't you start off there? All right. Well, I'm three years old. My mother wants to take me to West Australia, where her family are, to meet her family. So we may take the train trip from Melbourne to Perth, Australia. We meet her, her great aunt, my great aunt, the, the opera singer, who's also a sort of closet psychic, I mean, a very gifted medium, who reads the tea leaves the old-fashioned way. And she looks at my tea leaves. She turns white. She won't talk. You don't say anything about it until later. That winter, I am taken into hospital under emergency circumstances with pneumonia. I'm three years old. The doctors pronounce me dead. And when I come back, they say with some embarrassment, oh, boy, he died and he came back, didn't he? That's where the title of the book comes from. And only then does my mother, does my, 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 my great aunt, the opera singer, reveal that she saw my death in the tea leaves. She was right. 
but incomplete. I mean, I died and came back. Yeah. I don't remember much of what happened when I was three years old, Bob, but I know that it was very hard living in the body after that for a while. I felt like a stranger on this earth. I mean, I felt I was trying to operate a vehicle. I didn't know how to handle it. It's very strange. When I was nine, I had a fuller experience, uh, which is perhaps the one you'd like me to talk about. Yeah, let's go there because it is. It's so, uh, it's so unique. It's almost like uh, it's almost like some kind of Peter Pan fantasy that took place with you. And I love it because it starts off really from this perspective of a nine-year-old. Yeah, go ahead. Take, take it away. Okay, so I'm having a hard time. I mean, I've been sick a lot. I've just been in hospital with pneumonia again. I'm nine years old. I say to my father, I feel crook. That's an Australian way of saying you're not feeling too good. He rushes me to the hospital in an ambulance. He knows that I don't complain about pain. My appendix is about to burst. The doctors say later I would have died if they'd been an hour late getting me to the hospital. And I leave my body under surgery. I mean, this sounds pretty familiar these days. We've heard lots of stories like the beginning of this one. I've left my body under surgery. I'm floating under the ceiling of the operating room. And I'm watching the blood and the mess, and I'm listening to the doctors and the nurses talking and gossiping, and I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. So I drift out of the room. I mean, not quite clear about what's happening. I see my mother in a waiting room looking very sad, and I feel a bit guilty. I mean, I don't want to make my mother sad. I look out the window, and it's a sunny day, and there's the beach, and there's the coast, and there down the coast is a fun park, a theme park, a lunar park, just for fun. And I'm thinking, I want to do what any Australian kid would like to do on a sunny day. I want to have some fun. I want to go to the theme park. So I leave the hospital. I have a distant memory of sort of going through the glass and the glass stretching to let my body, my energy body, I would now say, let me through. And then I'm at Lunar Park, there's a big moon face at the gate, a big moon face with an open mouth, and I go through the gate, I'm going to go on the ghost train and have free rides and have fun, and suddenly there's traction. And I'm drawn, it seems, into a world other than this world, maybe a world within this world, a world behind this world, I don't know. And I'm greeted by extraordinary people. I mean, they're beautiful beings. They are tall, they're pale, they're radiant, they're really lovely. They greet me as one of their own. And they receive me, and they welcome me, and they start raising me as a boy, and then an adolescent, and then a man, and then an elder, and a father and a grandfather as one of their own. And I'm living a whole life, Bob, in a world different from mine. It's a beautiful world. It's a peaceful world. It has its troubles, but they're minor compared to the ones we experience in our regular Earth. And I seem to live a whole, fulfilled, satisfactory, loved and loving life among them. And then that body is used up, and I expect I'm going to go live in a place among the stars or something like that according to their belief system and I pulled back into the body of a boy who's just had surgery, just had an appendectomy in a Melbourne hospital room and I come back remembering. Now you can call this a gift but I'll tell you it's a tricky gift to have if you're growing up in the 1950s in Australia, in a very conservative era and nobody's really used to talking about this kind of thing. We don't have a phrase like NDE, Raymond Moody hadn't come along yet and I'm trying to tell my story, and the doctors say, oh, poor kid, he's hallucinating. It's the medication, isn't it? And my parents are very nice, supportive people. They want to help me, but they do not know how to process this information. The only person I knew in those days who could help me to understand that there was a model for this kind of experience was an Aboriginal kid from the dreaming tradition of the first people of Australia who talked very matter-of-factly, oh, yeah, we do that, we get sick, we go and live somewhere else. If we get well, we come back, sometimes we're the same Sometimes we're not. So I was beginning to hear that there is, in an ancient and indigenous traditions anyway, a model for this kind of thing. It was very helpful for me later on when Ray Moody came along and gave us the term NDE, although that is still not my preferred term for what happened to me. I still think of it as dying and coming back. 
Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's definitely <laughs> that says it right there. What happened? Uh, you know, it's just so fascinating to me that you basically went into this, you know, you became some other being on some other dimension um, and, and, and pretty much lived an entire lifetime before coming back. I mean, you, when you were there, you said they kind of accepted you. So they accepted you as like a nine-year-old boy. And were you, were you still human and they were some other, some other type of being? There was no difference between us, so I assume that the shape of my energy body changed, or maybe I joined a body that I had access to in a parallel reality. I mean, maybe that's what happened. Maybe my consciousness, my spirit, in the subtle form that had left the hospital, joined the physical body, or the seemingly physical body, of a being who was one of their own in another reality. I mean, as we explore further into these areas, Bob, you probably thought a lot about this yourself. I mean, science is telling us we live in maybe one of infinite parallel universes right now as you and I are talking. We have counterparts in other parallel universes, and maybe some of those counterparts are human. Maybe some of those counterparts are other than human. I felt at home. I was received there. It felt as if I had a life, perhaps do have a life, an identity in another reality. So from that experience, I carried the first-hand knowledge that there are worlds beyond the physical one. I've known that all of my life since then because of that experience, because of remembering it. Yeah. And then you live, uh, do I have it right? I mean, you live, if, if you even know, I don't know if you know for sure, but like into your 80s, I mean, you, you live an entire life, right? And I would say older than that. It's very hard to put a human time frame on it, but I feel as I think about that being that I was, that I became, that he was an elder, he was in his 90s, maybe in his hundreds, maybe all older than the normal human span of years. A long, long life with many children and grandchildren and so on. Wow, I, I, I don't, it's just so exciting to me uh, because of the, the many possibilities. And the theme, we've sort of had a theme here in 2015 with guests. We had uh, one who had, uh, he's had many out-of-body experiences, and he was talking about this multidimensional universe that we live in. And, and then here you come along and you have this experience as a nine-year-old that speaks directly to that. Uh, you know, you do use the word multiverse in your subtitle, Adventures of a Dream Archaeologist in the Multiverse. You're talking about a multidimensional universe here? Yes. I mean, multiverse is the shorthand for multidimensional universe. William James, the great American psychologist, first coined the word. It became popular through the fantasy novels of Michael Moorcock. And, you know, I mean, I like snappy phrases. So multiverse is the short version of multidimensional universe. And one of the tenets of the book, and one of the things I think I've understood since my childhood, is that we are living right now in the multiverse, in the multidimensional universe. I mean, ordinarily, we may see and think in 3D or even only 2D as we watch each other on screen. But in fact, all around us is the thrumming, thriving life of this vaster universe. And it's very interesting what happens to people when they wake up to the fact that the time is actually now, that these other universes, these parallel times, past lines, past, past times, future times are accessible in this moment if you're willing to make yourself available. Yeah. Um, this Aboriginal boy, now we can, we can learn a lot um, uh, from that culture. Uh, you, were, you really weren't supposed to be uh, having any kind of relationship with him at all. What a gift that, uh, that you did, right? Well, you know, that was a racist era in Australia. I mean, my parents were not inherently racist, but they had the common attitude of the society, which was that abos, aborigines, were not to be dealt with, not appropriate uh, friends for their kids and so on, so I wasn't supposed to hang out with them. But that boy, uh, who I remember from my childhood, as I say, 
taught me a little bit of what his culture had taught him, which is that the dream time is for real. Dreaming is for real. The dreaming may be more real than our experiences in ordinary life. One of the aboriginal terms for the dream time is the all at once. It's a place where you're outside linear time. It's a place where the ancestors can speak to you. It's a place where you can move among the dead who are living somewhere else. So I knew those things. And it was sustaining information for me to have as a kid who felt very isolated to know that there was a culture, a first tradition, a very early tradition of my country that understood those things that way. You know, I love how, um, how our past as, as children uh, seems to set us up uh, for uh, maybe our work, or, you know, or in later life. Uh, yours certainly seems as though it was all pointing in the direction of the work you do now. One of the things was uh, you, you talked about yourself being a sickly child. I mean, right now, we're going to talk about these things uh, later in the interview, but your work focuses a lot on dream work, uh, coincidences, imagination. These are a lot of things that you learned as a boy being a sickly child. Explain to us why that was. I, I learned a lot in terms of my knowing that there are worlds beyond the physical and in terms of my knowing that we can see across time, we can talk to the dead who are living somewhere else and other things. I've carried that knowledge with me always. One of the things that went on between my younger self and my older self might be a great interest to you and your viewers, Bob, and it's this. I learned later on that it's possible to travel across time and go back to a younger self who needs help, support, mentoring in his or her own life, in his or her own time, and help them through. One of the things that got me through my sickly childhood, and let me pause and say, I had double pneumonia 12 times in the ages of three and eight. I was in sick rooms more than half the time. Uh, I had a very hard time, and I was lonely, and I, I was sorry for myself. One of the things that got me through was that amongst those invisible companions, you know, you know that phrase, invisible companions, was a big pink-faced man with a mess of white hair who'd come into my room, it seemed, and sit down on the bed and basically say, look here, Robert. I know you're feeling sorry for yourself, but you're going to survive. I can promise you, you're going to make it through. You have a hard time telling people your stories, but I can promise you, one day a lot of people in this world are going to be very interested in your dreams and your stories. And you're lonely now, I can promise you, you know the love of women and they'll love you. This was my older self, younger than I now am, going back to my younger self and sustaining him. And I mean, I've journaled these things. I've kept journals for a very long time. And I'm quite convinced. But one of, from my own experience, that one of the things we can learn to do for ourselves is to do this, to go back to a younger self in a time of vulnerability or pain and give them a bit of support. Say you'll make it through. You might not change anything in the record of history, but you'll change something in your own ability to make it through, and you'll bring healing both for yourself, your present self, and that younger self. So that's been part of my transactions with my younger self, and from it I've learned some very cool techniques for helping other people to approach healing. Uh, so I want to make sure I get this right. Now, did you have, did you have this invisible friend? Did you see? Is this a memory you have as a child? But you also know that you went back uh, to to that child within you from the past uh, to visit him. So you you were visiting yourself, and you actually do you have that memory? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, here we go. I mean, here, here, here we've got the makings of Back to the Future type movies. I mean, and we've got the speculation about how many universes are splitting off every time something like this happens. <laughs> I'm perfectly convinced that I have the memories of those visitations and that I have the memories of the man who decided to make those visitations later on. If there's a paradox there, well, it's a paradox that can actually now be explained in the language of many worlds, theory, and physics. So we have models of intellectual understanding of this kind of thing. 
But in respect of these things, Bob, and I think you're doing a great service in bringing this home to us, there's no substitute for experience. We want first-hand experience of these things. Mark Twain said, I don't want to hear about the moon from a man who hasn't been there. That's my attitude, too. When it yeah. comes to these matters, we need the, the, authentic, the authentic experience. The reliable information comes from first-hand knowledge. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, it, what's great about this, um, you telling us the story, because uh, we've talked uh, in other interviews about, um, uh, you know, children who have uh, what we call imaginary friends and and their imaginary friends actually being, you know, people in spirit who are visiting them. This is a this is something on a whole new level, the possibility of um, almost, uh, you know, uh some might call them masters or, you know, elders or something coming to give a message that that could change a young person's life if they're almost giving up on life. And, and that seems to be your story here. And, but the idea that it was you from the future, as you say, uh, giving yourself this wisdom and that you've created a technique for for making this happen. It's mind-blowing, exciting, all at the same time. I love this. This is great. You, um, uh, well, let's, so let's back up a little bit. Uh, we'll, we'll move on from that. We're going to back up a little bit because uh, I know uh, we only have so much time, and I have so much to ask you. I want to talk about dreaming. You do dream work. You teach people all about dreams. Uh, one of the things you say is that dreaming is not about sleeping. It's about waking up. Uh, expand upon that. Well, in ordinary circumstances, we may be going through life like sleepwalkers. I mean, letting other people tell us what reality is, telling us who we are, what can be expected of us, you know, forgetting that we might have some larger purpose. What interests me about dreaming in several senses is that it may wake us up to a deeper order of events, even to a sense of a bigger story and a larger life purpose than we're ordinarily aware of. Now, how does this waking up take place? Well, it can happen in sleep dreams, in a spontaneous experience, in the kind of dream you did not ask for and maybe don't want, that shows you something about yourself that you need to see. But dreaming isn't just about what happens during sleep. I spend a lot of time in those in-between states of hypnagogia. You're not awake, you're not asleep, you're somewhere in between. You're drifting. That's a time when we are psychically very receptive, very alive, very awake. We can see a whole group of images rising and falling in consciousness, which can become the portals for lucid dreaming. You're very interested in that. And of course, in the workshops and in my own practice, we do shamanic dreaming. We use simple heartbeat drumming to shift consciousness and make focused journeys. We journey to the other side of death to have time and helpful communication with people who live there, for example. That's a very important part of what I teach and practice. So in all these senses, dreaming might be going beyond you know, the limits of our ordinary understanding. And let me add quickly, because I just finished a book that is all about living by synchronicity. The dreaming also involves reading the signs, symbols, and patterns of coincidence and chance encounter around your waking life. That's a way of dreaming, too, looking at everything in your life as if it might be a set of dream symbols. Well, you know, I, I actually have questions about that, and, and so I am going to ask you about that. Let me say again, let me show everybody again. Uh, this is your latest book, The Boy Who Died and Came Back, Adventures of a Dream Archaeologist in the Multiverse. I, you know, I encourage people to just go on Amazon or, you know, all the show notes are below this video and, and, and they can link to, um, to this book from there. And from there, they can click on your name, uh, which is right underneath the title, and they can see all the books that you've done. And there's many books on dreaming. And what I thought was really interesting about it is you tend to, the books that you're writing are very focused uh, around a certain, whatever, concept, technique, uh, 
what, what have you, regarding dreaming. One of them is about uh, really the afterlife. I mean, there's one that's very focused on the afterlife. Uh, and I was tempted to just talk about that. And we're going to talk about some of that today. But, um, but there's just so much that is fascinating about your work. And I didn't want to limit our audience to just the afterlife stuff. Um, so moving on, well, let's just, you, you created this, uh, something called active dreaming. This is really the foundation of your work. Everything from there just leads off of that. It's great. Why don't you tell us about it? Well, active dreaming is an original approach. It's really an original school, Bob. I mean, I teach teachers of this process and it's active now in 21 countries. Active dreaming is a made-up phrase. It's the phrase I invented. It's a provocation. You know, it's a challenge to the state of thinking that, that supposes that dreams, if we value them at all, are just passive experiences. You lie down a dream, you have a dream, or a dream has you. Yeah, okay, that can be important, actually, that kind of dream. But it's saying in the phrase active dreaming, we can get active about dreaming, and that means three things in particular in terms of daily practice. First of all, we find a way to walk and talk our dreams, to share our dream stories that is fun and interesting and energizing, and to take action based on our dream messages. Secondly, it's a mode of shamanic lucid dreaming, if you like, a way of entering consciously into dream realities, going places, doing interesting things, bringing back gifts, and doing that anytime you like, wide awake and conscious. And thirdly, it's a way of being active as a dreamer in the ordinary world by playing with synchronicity and doing that very well and noticing patterns of resemblance and the secret order of events can become accessible when you look at synchronicity that way. So that's what it's about. It's fun, it's energizing, and it makes the experience of the absolute authority over their own experience. I mean, I will never tell people what their experiences mean. I'll give them some feedback from my point of view as a frequent flyer, but I will never tell you or anybody else what your dream or your life means. I'll just say, if it's my dream, I'd think about such and such, mate, because I've been out there and I've seen a few things. So it's, a, it's also a good way to learn to talk about stuff. It really is. Uh, it, again, you know, uh, your website is Moss Dreams, M-O-S-S Dreams, plural, dot com. People can go there. They can see, uh, you know, where the next workshops are. These videos stay up indefinitely. So they can always go there to mossdreams.com, see uh, where you're giving your next workshop. I, it is. I, you've been in places around the world I, I, I could never dream of, not to, you know, uh, of going because I can't, some of my wasn't really even aware where they were when I started to really think about it. You really have taught all around the world. It shows how many people are interested in the subject, doesn't it? People are hungry for this, Bob. They're hungry for direct access to a depth of experience and knowledge about the larger reality. They are hungry to know about life after death. You know this. Look at what you've been doing. And you know as well as I do that when people have a first-hand knowledge that there is something beyond death that consciousness survives, they're sometimes able to make better choices in life as they look at things from a depth perspective that death can give you. People want to know about that. I'll tell you a quick story about synchronicity, the afterlife, my writing, and traveling the world. May I right. do that? Yeah, let's do so that. I'm on a plane, yet another plane. I travel a lot of planes, and I have amazing chance encounters. So I'm on a plane going somewhere. A whole family gets on, and there's a matriarch, very well-dressed, a dominant lady in charge of several generations of her family. She sits down next to me. I have the new edition of one of the books of mine that you referred to indirectly. It's called Dream Gates, and it has a lot about what happens after death in it. I've got the new, new edition of that book on my lap. She says, I want to see that book. So she picks up the book. She opens it at random, and she's a sec in a section headed, Designing a Home on the Other Side. And in this section, I write about people, how people who believe that they've actually been creating environments where they can live after death, doing that as a conscious enterprise. 
And she looks at me and she says, good God, is this really possible? I say, absolutely. She says, wow. She says, I spent 20 years creating a jewel of a home in Carmel, California. I'm going to spend a lot more time over there in the, in the not-so-distant future. Maybe I should get this book and learn how to design a home there. Go for it, I said. So that's the kind of thing that comes up. And that's also the kind of thing that becomes possible when you become this kind of active dreamer. You're engaged in the field and you begin to notice that the imagination creates realities quite literally. When it comes to discussing things like the afterlife, or realities beyond the physical. The play of imagination as an engine of creation is extremely important. Anyway, that old lady got it on the plane, so she yeah. was off to find out how to design her home on the other side. And good for her, you know, good for her to, you know, she caught on very quickly and, and she understands uh, the eternal aspect of our soul, so uh, that's, a, that's a great story. One of the things you talked about, you, you, I think you touched upon it just a moment ago, but I thought it was really interesting and uh, I'd love for you to just tell our audience about it, is um, as part of active dreaming, you say you have something called dream re-entry. Tell us about that. This is an absolutely core technique and it's very simple and once you start practicing it, you'll be wondering why you haven't been doing it all your life. It goes like this. You have a dream, right? You remember something from a dream? It could be an image from somewhere else in your life. It doesn't have to be a sleep dream, but let's say you remember something from a dream and it's interesting to you. Maybe it's interesting because you were scared and you had to run away from something and you've left a fear unresolved. Maybe it's interesting because you're in a wonderful environment and you like more but you had to get up and go to work. Maybe it's interesting because your dead grandmother was in the dream and you'd like to know whether she has something to tell you or you maybe she needs something from you, maybe she has some advice. Maybe it's interesting because you're in a car crash, you'd like to clarify whether that car crash is literal or symbolic, and if it's literal, when is it going to happen and can you avoid it? So there are all sorts of reasons why you might have an image left over from a dream which you're interested in exploring further. The best way to know what is going on in that dream is to go back inside it. And I mean just like this. You've been to a house, you've been to an office, you've been to a coffee shop, you know where it is, you can go there again. A dream is a bit the same. When you've had a dream, or dreams had you, you've been in a certain environment, a certain landscape, a certain scene, and if you remember any of that, you can make it your focused intention to step back into that scene and go on with the action. You might start by simply seeing more of what's going on, but you might have more to do. You might have a fear to overcome. You might need to face that giant bear that was turning up in your bedroom. You might want to interview your dead grandmother and have a conversation with her. You might want to clarify the, the details of a possible future incident so that you can either manifest a happy future incident or avoid an unwanted one. These are some of the many things you can do through the technique of dream re-entry. Now in the workshops, we use simple, fairly monotonous shamanic drumming to help people shift consciousness, but we marry that to a couple of important things. You've got a clear image, a dream, let's say, an image that's in your mind, it's got some energy, it's got some traction for you. You're going to set up some clear intentions. What do you want to know? What do you intend to do? if you're able to go back into the space of the dream and operate with full consciousness. The results can be absolutely stunning. They can be extraordinary. So this is the royal road to becoming a lucid dreamer. I mean, that phrase is very popular since the film Inception, and some of my friends write books called Lucid Dreaming, but what most of those book lack is, books lack is the simple understanding. The easiest way to become a lucid, conscious dream traveler is to take an image that belongs to you, something that's come to you already, and use it as your portal or doorway and make a conscious journey through it. That's a beautiful idea, you know, certainly nothing I had ever thought of before, but you're right. I, I, the, that, that portal or doorway, what a, it's perfect, and it makes perfect sense to me, and it's brilliant. It's brilliant to go in there in that way, but, you know, one does need to really uh, adopt this belief that 
that we can change uh, both the future and the past because there isn't. There's really no such thing, right? I mean, everything's happening at the same time as the uh, near-death experiences love to uh, remind us. Uh, and in this, so in this particular case, here you are using your imagination to make something happen uh, however you want to make it. Uh, is that sort of the idea with this? I mean, I know there's a lot of things you can do, but can you really change the past or the future with these dreams? I think you can, and I think you've got nothing to lose by trying. I know you can change the future. I mean, I know that we are tracking forward into our possible future all the time. We have become most aware of this when we improve our dream recall and look at our dream reports and ask, hey, wait a minute, could this happen in the future? And then we learn to say when we discover that we do dream events before they happen, we learn to ask ourselves, what I, do I want this to happen or do I want to avoid it? And then we learn to use the dreams as warnings, not just as precognitive data. I know, we could, I know I wouldn't be talking to you on this show right now, Bob, if I had not avoided death on the road, literal death, physical death on the road, three times, to my certain knowledge, because I dreamed fatal accidents on the road, fatal encounters on the road, clarified the information and avoided those circumstances. I've seen this with many other people. Changing the past? Well, I think we can certainly change our experience of life. Uh, if we truly changed events in the past, then we'd split off to one of those universes and maybe we change other things as well. But I know from my own example of supporting my younger self that I was able to help myself get through a difficult passage. Uh, and I know that we can reach to other lives. I know that we can reach to lives in other times that are relevant to us and enter the mindset of those personalities and do some good that way. I don't have a straightforward belief in reincarnation, a straightforward view of reincarnation, but I know this as a traveler. I know we are connected to other life stories, and I think we can enter minds in other eras altogether, other cultures, other, other traditions, and do some good for each other. So I'm very proactive about this. I don't want to say uh, we cannot do things, but we might as well give it a try. Yeah, everything that comes out of your mouth sounds brilliant. Uh, sometimes it's the simplest things uh, that, that just blow me away. Uh, and I, and I, I heard you say it before, maybe you say it in your book, um, there's nothing to lose by trying. And it's very interesting because we deal with a lot of skepticism um, with the work that we do here with the afterlife. And it, it's very interesting because that's a great question to ask. What do we have to lose uh, by investigating this? You know, why are we so protective? And in your particular case, what, what do we have to lose by trying this out and seeing um, seeing if it's something that benefits us in some way. Uh, brilliant. I love that. Dream reentry. Now, um, you were talking about the, the dead grandmother. Uh, use that as an example. Uh, and you, you, you've had a lot of experience with these dream visitations where our loved ones in spirit visit us during our dreams, have something to say with us. Um, is your experience different than... Uh, you know, what's sort of traditional out there that, that these are very vivid dreams that we tend to remember like it happened yesterday, even if it, we had it 30 years later, and that they typically have uh, common messages that are like, um, you know, uh, they just say hi, they let us know that they're okay, and that they're very happy. You know, I mean, that's, those t tend to be the very common messages. Are your dream visitations different than this? Well, first of all, let me say that the experience of dreaming of the departed is very common. Maybe it's universal, even though there are hardheads who say, I don't dream or I don't remember or, or shrug it off. And there are three reasons why contact with the deceased is normal, not, not abnormal, common, and not really weird. 
in our dreams, especially in our dreams. The first is that they're still around. They may still be around. That might be good, bad, or mixed. You know, they might be around because they want to get another drink through us. They might be around because they think we're clueless and need some guidance. So that might be helpful for a while. They might be around because they don't know they're dead. And that can be problematic. And we might find that we've got to help them understand their situation. The second broad reason why the departed turn up in our dreams and our lives is, as you were saying, that they make visitations. And they come for all the reasons that we call on each other and then some. And they come for healing and forgiveness. And sometimes we come alive to the fact, the very important fact, Bob, which you well understand, that healing and forgiveness are always available, even across the apparent barrier of death. This is a huge thing to understand. So they come calling on us. And of course, they use apparent technologies. They use text. They use email. They use a phone. They use uh, Skype uh, in our dreams, just as they do in waking life. And sometimes, I guess, they can push the buttons on the keyboard and make things happen physically as well. So the third reason why contact with the deceased is not weird or abnormal, especially in dreams, is we travel to where they are. You may not be aware of what's going on. You think you're in a locale that's a bit like this, but a bit different. You may wake up to the fact that you're visiting one of the many realms where the deceased are alive. So this is one of the ways we begin to get first-hand knowledge, not only that consciousness survives death, but that there is a geography of the afterlife that we can begin to explore firsthand. Uh, my experiences of this match those of people in many ways. I guess where they might be somewhat different is that I have also had very important visitations and even, you know, almost lifelong relationships with some rather well-known people who are on the other side. I wrote very openly about my relationship with William Butler Yeats, the Irish poet, in The Dreamer's Book of the Dead. Yeats is great. My book, my book, The Dreamer's Book of the Dead. Yeats's great ambition was to produce, one of his great ambitions was to produce a Western Book of the Dead, you know, up to the level of the Egyptian Book of the Dead or Tibetan Book of the Dead, but written from a Western viewpoint. He went at it hard. He went at it for decades. He exhausted himself trying to do it. And then I exhausted myself trying to do his job, trying to carry it on. And in that period, some version of Yeats was with me almost every night, spurring me on, giving me leads, introducing me to people. Was that the dead William Bubbly Yeats? I don't know. Is it the essence of Yeats? Maybe. The part of me that's like Yeats? I don't know. But I know it was a very creative engagement. So I know that in my creative life, I've benefited from extraordinary relationships with people who've appeared in the guise of some really, some masters, let's say, some masters, some hugely enlightened and creative individuals who are no longer in this world. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, so many things about that. But, you know, I, I just think one is that when anybody uh, enters into any kind of a creative endeavor, uh, we can call upon other people that have inspired us to try to help us through that process in the same way you did with Yates. Uh, you know, I, we're, we're touching upon um, something else that you've talked about uh, where you help people heal their relationships with the deceased. Um, any more to say about that other than what you've already told us? I think it's of tremendous importance. So many of us have unhealed, unresolved issues with our dead. Uh, beginning to heal that can be as simple as starting out by writing a letter, saying what you need to say, whatever it might be, to someone who has gone, write them a letter. You know, you don't think you can send the letter, you cannot put it in the mailbox, you can't text it, but maybe in a sense it will be received. I find myself often inviting people to do that. I will ask people to set up a simple, non-ritualized, personal altar to someone on the other side. They want to talk to, put out something that uh, represents that person, put out something they would like to eat or drink, light a candle, put out a picture, and just sit down and imagine that they're there and have a conversation with them. 
But beyond that, I guide people to make journeys to meet the deceased. Would you like me to tell a story of such a journey uh, uh, guided for a man who didn't believe that the afterlife was possible but still needed to see his dead son? Would you like to hear that? That sounds great, yeah. So this was actually a Hungarian guy, and he'd grown up under communism in Hungary, so he was taught that there's no soul and there's no God and all of that. So that was the ideology he was raised in. He's also a scientist engineer, and his uh, you know, scientific background told him, well, you know, don't think about something as fuzzy as the soul or the afterlife, and his son predeceased him, died of leukemia. And it's, he was he is stricken by it. I mean, he's, he's traced in a tragic state. And he'd love to have contact with his son, even though his mind says it's not possible. And his wife drags him along to one of my depth workshops. And, you know, he doesn't remember his dreams. He has no practice of inner life, no meditation, nothing like that. Doesn't believe in the afterlife, but he wants something. Yeah. And we're doing a drumming journey, and he's supposed to be using that to try and go on a journey to meet his son, and nothing happens. He's frustrated. So I stand next to him when I'm drumming in the circle the next time. And I see some images, and I say at the end of the drumming, when he's again got nothing, I say, I've got some pictures I'd like to share with you. I see this kind of blue bird out in, out in a grain field. It's, oh, I know that blue bird. Its name is such and such in Hungarian, Zoltan, or something like that. And then I see you with a young man who I think might be your son in what I would call a salon, a nice room overlooking the river. He said, yeah, I, my son and I were in that river in Budapest overlooking the river. And I see you clinking glasses. Maybe it's uh, hot tea. No, no, it's mulled wine. We had mulled wine in that room, he says. And your son's got a manuscript under his hand, under his arm, some kind of Magyar epic. Oh, yeah, my, my, my son's great ambition was to do a new edition of this Hungarian epic of the 11th century. I say, okay, I'm not playing psychic reader here. I'm not telling you th these things to say I've met your son. I'm saying you, these things to you because I believe your son has given us a place where you could go and talk to him directly. In the next drumming, I'd like you to go to that room you remember, overlooking the river, and see what you can do. I'm getting shivers as I tell this to you, Bob. So we're drumming again. I mean, let, let's be clear. The drumming is fuel for the journey. It's not essentially about the drumming. It's about finding something that is simple that helps you to shift your mind yeah. so you can do the stuff more easily. He goes there. He meets his son. He comes back streaming with tears. He has a long list of particulars from his son about where he's gotten with his editorial project, with his mega epic, about things that the father will now do in life that the son has requested him to do for family healing. And he says, you've changed my life. I now know that there's life beyond death. I know what it's like. I know that I have a place there and I'll live my life differently. So that's perhaps a slightly complicated story, but it's still a fairly simple story when you think about it. All that was required here was for someone to suggest to a man who wanted contact but didn't quite believe it was possible. There's a place he could go, a rendezvous place, a place of encounter with someone on the other side where they could both do some good and he accomplished it. So this is the kind of thing that I do. Life-changing for that man. Um, uh Without doubt, uh, I can't even imagine uh, what that felt like when he went back home, and uh, and and you know to think that his wife dragged him there, as you say, which I've seen that happen many many uh, uh, related type of workshops uh, where the the husbands are kicking and screaming, and then they they leave to have an experience like that. Uh, well, that you know, he, you've now given him a tool, as all our audience who just heard that now has this new tool to be able to utilize on their own. And, and it goes back to what you were talking about, this sort of portal or entryway, using that memory as one uh, entryway into uh, furthering the experience beyond what it was in the past. It's, I love that. That's exciting. Exciting to me. Uh, I'm going to try it on my own. I, uh, I want to go next to 
And I, I, I'm going to say right now, hospice workers, hospice nurses, <laughs> uh, pay attention to this, uh, the volunteers, all of you. Uh, you use active dreaming to assist people through the dying process. So this is not people in the spirit world. This is people who are soon to go there. Uh, tell us about that experience. Well, again, I like to teach by stories, and you seem to be game to hear my stories. So let me introduce it. Let me introduce it with a very simple story about what can be accomplished. If you simply make a space where someone who is approaching death is encouraged to remember a dream and to tell the story. So this story comes from one of my students whose father at the time was in a nursing home um, and he'd had a series of strokes. And she'd go to visit him and she'd say, you know, Dad, if you ever remember a dream, I'd love to hear it. He'd say, oh, you, you new age types with your dreams, you know I don't do that. I mean, he was a good guy and you know, he had a successful life, outdoors life, no inner practice, no recall of dreams, but one day, she comes in and he says, well, I remember a dream, okay? And he says, you know, I'm about to be catheterized, he says. Yeah, okay, Dad. Yeah, I got this dream. I got this dream about a garden hose that is out of control and it's squirting all over the place. <laughs> they both start laughing because they see the link between the dream and the state of his plumbing. And, you know, it's not a really a happy incident, but it lightens the mood and they're feeling better. And now he's proud because he starts remembering dreams. He has a series of dreams in which he's got new jobs. And in one of the dreams, he's got a job ironing out angels' wings, because when angels fly around, they get very rumpled and disheveled. So in his dream, Dad is now ironing out the angel wings. It's beautiful. This goes on for six months. And he's like a kid who's getting an A or a gold star for the first time every time he remembers a dream. It's fun. She's doing no interpretation, none at all. Yeah. All she's doing is applauding him and cheering him on. And then he has the big one. And this, I love this story. It's one of my all-time favorite dream stories, and I have a few. He says, you know, I went to this big white house on a hill, and they had this dinner set up in my honor, and it was all so fancy. And I'm there in my hospital gown with my rear end hanging out, and I'm feeling <laughs> embarrassed. But this guy who looks like an ambassador in his tuxedo and silk sash, we're so happy to see you, he says. Come on in. He says, I have what tastes like the best steak, but it's better than steak, and the best champagne, but it's better than champagne. Have this lovely evening, and at the end of it, the dream ambassador says, says, Dad, now you have our address. Now you know where to come. We'll be waiting for you when the time is right. At this moment, after telling this dream, Dad lose any, loses any remaining fear of death. He feels that he's got a connection, which he always wanted to have in his life. He's got an address on the other side. He dies well with courage and grace. And after his death, it's lovely when there's a follow-up. He appears to his daughter in a dream and says, I want to take you to that White House to meet my friends. Oh, my God. So you want to be psychological about this. You could say that's great. It adjusted him to the process. He lost his courage. I'm transpersonal about it. I think he actually found a realm, yeah. a realm created for him on the other side of death, which was, you know, his reception center and his welcome. And that in that encounter, he found the courage and grace to live the last part of his life as well as possible. So that's one of the things that can happen when we help people to open up to the fact that they are dreaming and find the, you know, find the, the right space in which to tell a dream. Because one of the things going on in dreaming is we travel to other places. We travel to realms beyond the physical. We do it spontaneously. We do it automatically. So, but you might say, so what about the person who still doesn't have the dream or personal image? We can talk about that if you like, because I've invented a process I call dream transfer or vision transfer, by which we gift, gift to another person a dream, an image, sometimes a map to the afterlife, uh, which they may be lacking. And uh, I could give you a simple example of how that works in regular life. Yeah. All right. Let's do that. Before we do that, I just, I mean, I really want to pinpoint uh, what you were just talking about there. I, I think w one of the things that that story really teaches us is, 
And this is true for so many things. Meditation is one that reminds me uh, of that story, is that the more you do it, the more comfortable you get at it, the better you get at it. And, uh, and it seems to, um, I don't know, it's kind of like, you know, I keep thinking about this sort of doorway into things. You know, when, when we're not paying attention to our dreams at all, uh, they may be benefiting us on some kind of subconscious level, but not a conscious level. When we start to work with dreams and think about them, and here it was a very playful game for him to be able to remember his dreams and then, and then tell uh, someone about them. Uh, now it became in, something that the more he did it, the more he remembered his dreams. And it gets all the way to the point where he has you know, this incredible afterlife um, pre-afterlife experience, almost like a dream visitation, but he went there and, and, it, and it made him not fear death anymore. What more can you ask for from a dream? I just love the idea that the more we do this, the better we get at it and the more benefits we receive from it. And I, I, so I wanted to point that out. Talk to us about this vision transfer. Absolutely. I just want to endorse what you said, Bob. It is about practice. You know, that's how you get good at anything, right? Practice, practice, practice. And you know, there's a reward for this practice. I mean, Dad started having real fun. He never thought he'd have fun remembering and telling dreams. He had fun. It gave a lift to every morning, you know, and at that time in the nursing home. Okay, what do we do for someone who doesn't have a dream, doesn't have a vision? I mean, this applies to many situations in life, but let's stay focused on the afterlife, our relationship with the afterlife. Yeah. So I invented this technique I call vision transfer several years ago after a friend approached me for help for her mother. And I'll tell the primal originating experience that led to me developing the technique. Mom was alone. She'd lost dad. Dad had died. Mom is scared of living, scared of dying. She's sort of stuck in the house, doesn't drive, never balanced a checkbook. She's sort of lost on every level. Yeah. And my friend says, what can I do for mom? I say, well, why don't you start by asking for a dream for your mother? What would that mean? Well, just set the intention for the night. I'd like a dream to help mom. That was her intention for that night. In the morning, she calls me. I've got this dream. I'd like to tell it to you. I'll go ahead. Well, mom and I are going down a slide into a great big swimming pool. It's like a water theme park, fun park kind of deal. Mom splashes down into the pool, happy, which is strange because mom has never learned to swim and would never ordinarily enjoy this. A barrier comes down. The dreamer cannot follow mom. A voice says, you may not enter at this time. And the dreamer looks over the barrier in the pool. Mom is splashing around, happy as an otter, and she's fooling around with a handsome young man in the pool. Mom, <laughs> well, well, we're chuckling over this dream, and we say almost in the same breath, this should be Mom's dream. What a great dream. Suppose she had dreamed this dream. This would lighten her up, wouldn't it? It's happy in its own right. She's going into a dimension she's not ordinarily afraid of. What a great dream to rehearse for going into a dimension beyond this life. And suddenly the light bulb comes on in my feeble brain, and I say to my friend, let's make it mom's dream. She says, what do you mean? Can you call her up and tell her the dream? Mom's a thousand miles away. Yeah, I could do that. I think she'd listen. Why don't you call her up, tell her the dream, lay out all the sensual detail, make her be there, and see what happens. So my friend calls mom, and she reports back. Mom hears the dream the first time. There's a little cautious squeak. Then she says, tell me again. She tells mom again, there's some chuckles, there's some, <laughs> tell me about the guy in the pool, she says, tells her again. And mom is happy and we're thinking, well, that's good. Let's lift the pall of gloom and fear and so on. But here's the follow-up. A week later, mom calls my friend. She says, I know who he is. What? The guy in the pool. Mom, 
yeah, three o'clock in the night, I got this knock on the door, and I'm nervous. You know how I am. I open the door. There's this handsome young guy there, and he smooches me and gives me a big hug. And I look at him. It's your father, but he looks better than he ever did in this life. He looks about 30 years old. And he says, I come from a land where it's always spring, and I'll take you there at the right time. After that, for the last two years of her life, mom approached everything with a good spirit, with some humor, with some courage. She got out of the house. She was fine. She died well. So that's an example, a very simple everyday example. We could all imagine ourselves doing something like this if we have the material. An example of giving a dream, which in this case became a welcome. Hey, welcome to the afterlife. It became a welcome, a welcome which enabled someone to live and die well. This is the kind of thing we can learn to do. This is the kind of thing I help people to understand that we can do for each other. Wow. I got chills during that one. And um, reminded me a couple of things. You know, one is, uh, you know, you're a storyteller. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, a fraction of what you are as far as a storyteller. But when I tell stories uh, to our friends or whatever, I'm talking about things that happened to me in my past. Sometimes my wife was there, sometimes not. We've been together since she was 12 and I was 15. So she's seen a lot of them. But, um, but I tell these stories when she wasn't there and she's heard them enough times that she starts to believe that she was there <laughs> and it's become part of her life. Like that, she, she senses all the things that happened. And, uh, at some point I'll hear her telling the other person, some other person, that same story as if she was there. And I'm like, <laughs> so there's something to it. And I think that there's a real benefit in what, uh, what that person did for their mother and again, open up another portal for her to be able to to enter that dream on her own. Another is, you know, I remember reading a, quite a while ago, years ago, about uh, psychologists using a similar technique to this. Uh, I don't know the name of it, but where they would work with their their coaches do it too. They would work with their clients and say. Uh, if things were lousy in their life and they wanted to change them, they would say, well, what, what would it be like if everything was perfect the way you would want it? Let's just go into a magical land and, and think about what it would be like to be, you know, welcomed by your peers if that person's having trouble with their peers or something at work. And they would start to imagine this. And uh, before you know it, um, all of a sudden things turned out in the future to be the way that they had imagined them. Uh, this is a big part of your work is working with imagination. Uh, I know that you talked once about, um, really it's, it's just about expanding our minds and stretching ourselves. Uh, tell us a little bit about your work uh, and, and how important it is to, to use our imagination. We've been shut down from that. Well, one of my favorite sayings about the imagination is, the stronger the imagination, the less imaginary the results. The stronger the imagination, the less imaginary results. That comes from the Indian poet Tagore. It's true. I mean, we, we, we diss the imagination. We dismiss the idea of making things up. We call it magical thinking. But you know what? Magical thinking works. If you, you quoted a psychological approach to this, well, let's put it this way. Anything that we can envision in, in full reality using all of our senses and grow strong in our minds and our feelings is more likely to manifest in this world. So, you know, new age affirmation just comes from a head level, mounting to gimme, 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 is not going to work. It has to come, it has to engage your gut, it has to engage your heart, it has to engage, if you like, your higher self, your guardian angel, your creative spirit. It has to be interesting to them. So what I encourage people to do is to grow visions of possibility in life and step out of the limited boxes of self-limitation that we put ourselves in 
and do this by imagination. For example, lots of people are blocked in some way in this world. They feel a blockage. I'll encourage people to visualize the block, find out what the block looks like, what it feels like, and then decide what you want to do, do with it. I mean, if you're challenged at the voice, as many people are, they can't speak up, can't say their truth. Well, what is holding you back? Is it like a choke collar? Is it like something stuck in your throat? What's the shape of this thing? How would you get it out? How would you release it? So um, I would actually summarize a lot of this practice that I teach as the practice of imagination, the practice of creative imagination. On the physical level, in the body, it's as simple and important as this, Bob. The body believes in images. If we hold an image in our mind, it can make us well, it can make us sick, it can bring us down, it can bring us up. So let's choose the images that we carry in our minds that the body is listening to because it will take signals from the images we are carrying just as it will take physical events, it will behave accordingly. Change the imagery, you change the, change the behavior of the body. I learned that as a child at the end of that long cycle of illness, that to take the right image can change the behavior of the body. Well, I mean, I think it's so much more powerful than I can even express uh, to our audience. Uh, again, sort of another theme this year has been, you know, really uh, taking responsibility for the thoughts that we have. It goes uh, further than that, um, not just the thoughts that we have, but it, things that we're imagining in our lives. Uh, when we're worrying about something and we're, we're fearful of something, we're obviously imagining things in the negative. And, and, and I would imagine you would recommend to someone who does that to sort of change those to things that are more positive the way they would like them to be? Yeah, well, it's as simple as this. Whatever we think or feel strongly, the universe says yes. You know, that's what we're going to get. I mean, this is the famous or infamous law of attraction, and it's real, even though it's been, you know, mischaracterized in some treatments. Our, wherever we go in life, Bob, our attitude goes ahead of us. So if you're carrying an attitude of doom and self-defeatism, the world's going to give you a lot of reasons to sustain, you know, that attitude. Similarly, if you can shift your attitude to one of more positive expectation, agree with yourself that surprises might be fun, that, that challenges and gifts might, might, both be, might both be part of your learning process in life, you will do better. So, I mean, this is, this, these are fundamental rules of living. Check your attitude. Recognize that whatever you think or feel, the universe is going to say yes. And don't try to do the new age thing of jumping from saying I'm hopeless to saying I'm master of the universe. Just, just start dropping some of those negative statements that are going on in your head before you even utter them. Just catch yourself on the edge of those negative mantras and self-defeating beliefs and drop them. Stop saying those. You don't have to jump to the other extreme, but stop putting yourself down as a first step. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, you said your next book is going to be really about... Uh, the coincidence um i you I, I know you talk about coincidence as a way of paying attention to the world around us and you uh, sort of play a game uh in in looking at the symbols and signs that are all around you um as a way to possibly um guide you in your in your way i know you don't take it to the extreme um but you sort of you you pay attention to these things and you're aware of them um, is that can we use these things as a way for guidance in our life, or is that going too far with it? Oh yes, we can use a way of guidance. We don't want to be nutty about every sign, symbol, and coincidence that comes up. Your feelings will tell you what's important, 
And the longer term value of these things will be shown by the follow-up, whether the messages that you get are useful or not, whether they support life or not. But I play this game, for example, every time I go out in the morning from my house or the place where I'm staying, I'll look at the first three things that enter my field of perception, the first striking things that, that jump out. I mean, living in a small city in the Northeast, it might be a child's chalk drawing on the sidewalk, it might be the novelty plate on that car, it might be a snatch of conversation from someone going by. Just, you know, these little tarot cards from the world, you know, little little signs, little images being given to me by the world. And I'll play with the stories they are giving me, what, what are they tapping into, is there a pattern forming? So I'll look at this wherever I go. I'll look at all things as maybe having some symbolic value and being maybe keys to a larger order of meaning. But my feelings will tell me when it's really important, when it's really big, when it's that special moment which you absolutely do not want to miss because it takes you outside the ordinary rules of space-time. And those extraordinary moments uh, are a treasure. You know, once again, getting good at this, navigating by synchronicity, requires practice, practice, practice. You find yourself becoming a magnet for interesting synchronicity when you approach the world with and are available to this kind of thing and open to surprises. I mean, a lot of my life has a certain kind of rhyme and rhythm with one thing reflecting another and giving me every day a fresh story. Well, you know, uh, tarot cards from the world. <laughs> I love that. Tarot cards from the world. I mean, it's, I'm going to use that one. That's just beautiful. That, that could be the title of your next book. Uh, this is what your next book is about, though, the, the one that will be coming out that you're writing now? Well, you're very, you're, very, you're very prescient and very intuitive, Bob. The next book is actually called Sidewalk Oracles, Sidewalk Oracles. Okay. And, uh, and one of the sections of the book is headed Playing Sidewalk Tarot. So, so that, gives, that gives you a sniff of what it's about. It's a book of practice. It's a book of games and stories. It's not another work of scientific theory. I do have fun making up some new words to describe the practice, though. I've, I've invented a slightly new vocabulary. So anyway, it's called Sidewalk Oracles, Playing with Signs, Symbols, and Synchronicity in Everyday Life. And it's full of stuff that people are going to enjoy doing. It should be out in October. That's beautiful. Uh, MossDreams.com. Again, all the show notes, all the links are below these videos, but... Uh, can people sign up for a newsletter with you? Or They can sign up, yes. You can put your email address there. You've got a newsletter from time to time. You can also find me on Facebook, as they say. And you'll find that I'm offering adventures all over the map. So, And I also teach online courses to the Shift Network. So, you know, you might want to look at that medium, too. Oh, great, great. And that, that's, that's, that's a wonderful thing, too, because a lot of people don't travel and they want to find other ways to learn. But I think uh, to be able to take a workshop with you would really train any one of us how to, the best way to practice, 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 and get these things right. Uh, you've certainly... Um, You've certainly found the best ways to work with imagination, dreams, coincidence, all these things together, and and you've certainly um, connected it with the afterlife. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that would love to, and then are probably going to try using their imagination and dreams and some of this dream reentry um, to connect with their loved ones. Uh, in the spirit world again one more time we'll show the boy who died and came back it's a fascinating book there's so much in there uh, because it's your life story really there's just so much that people can gain from this from personal experience it's like you telling these wonderful stories it's the best way for us to learn adventures of a dream archaeologist in the multiverse otherwise known as the multi-universe um, and anything else that you want to promote while we're here well, this is a, I think I just want to give you and our viewers my dreamer's wish, Bob, and it's this. 
May your best dreams come true, and may you remember them. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, thank you very much, and I appreciate that, and I appreciate you being here, and um, and I look forward to your next book. That one sounds like uh, a treasure as well. And uh, my best luck to you and your world travels. Thank you, Bob. You're a dream host. Pleasure being with you. All right. Thank you, Robert. Bye-bye now. Bye.